Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everybody. I'm Olga Sergeyevich, and our guest today is Matt Pellini. Matt is a managing director in the secondaries team at Hamilton Lane. Hamilton Lane is one of the largest founder funds um, in the world and one of the largest alternative asset managers with strategies from equity to credit, real assets, and everything in between. Secondaries have been such an important part of the conversation for the last couple of years that I thought it would be a good idea to talk to Matt um, a little bit about what he sees in the market. And so in today's conversation, we'll talk a little bit about market overall, what are the types of transactions that um, Hamilton Lane is seeing and working on. And um, then we'll talk about the current state of events and where the most interesting investable opportunities are. Thanks, Olga. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here today. Great. So first, uh, let me ask you, tell us something about Hamilton Lane that people typically don't know. Um, for and, and and another question is, where does the name Hamilton Lane come from? So so actually, the Hamilton Lane origin story is is maybe a little bit less exciting than than you'd hope for. Uh, my understanding is of the two founders, their road names, one of them lives on Hamilton Lane and ha- Hamilton and then another one, um, Lane, and so put it together, and that's how we got Hamilton Lane. Um, so that's that's how the firm was named back in the day. And, um, you know, something we don't know is we're, we're known as a, as a large manager in private equity. Um, we've been doing venture for 27 years, and so that's a very active part of our portfolio as well. Okay, very cool. So let's jump into secondaries. Um, give us a little bit of an overview of the market overall, types of transactions, types of players, motivations. What does it all look like? Yeah, so so maybe starting a little bit of like what are secondaries? You know, secondaries in this context within the private markets um, are when assets change hands between an, an asset that's already kind of been in play changes hand between groups. And so if you think about that in in contrast to a primary, a primary investment is either in the context of a fund making a making a commitment to a new fund, or in the context of a company, basically a company raising new capital. And so, in the secondary, um, it's either the trading of a limited partnership interest, or you know the trading of a of a secondhand piece of a company. Or there's lots of different types of structured transactions in the secondaries. Um, it can be different types of continuation vehicles or strip sales. And so secondary means different things to def- different peoples. Um, it's become a very large part of the asset class. You know, last year alone, it was over $100 billion of, of secondary volume transacted. How the market has evolved since the beginning, what are some of the things that changed? Um, and what are some of the most active areas today? Yeah, so so um, maybe touching on that as as well as um, what you mentioned, you know, who who participates. So in a secondary transaction, you normally have both the the existing owner of the asset who is who is the seller. You have the buyer, and then in um, limited partnership transactions, you have the general partner or the fund manager themselves. And so those are the key constituents. Um, you know. It's really changed over the years in terms of just becoming a much larger part of the asset class. And so 
I joined Hamilton Lane and, and really got my first taste of the secondary markets in, in 2010. At that point in time, the market size was around $20 billion. And so it's grown over fivefold since, since I've joined um, about 15 years ago. Again, the the types of transactions have also changed dramatically. When when I first started, it was by and large just buying LP interest in in funds, and so um, both the transaction size has increased, the amount of transaction types have increased, and the overall complexity of the transactions has has increased um, meaningfully. I think another thing that's this change is really just the and, and what's, what's driven that is, is a few things. One is the overall um, NAV or net asset value in the asset class has grown. Um, mm-hmm. It continues to be a long-term asset class. And so if groups want to generate liquidity before an asset is sold or before a fund is wound down, they really don't have many, many options other than to tap into the secondary market and find a, a, a buyer um, that can you know, buy out their position. The sellers in this market has have really changed you know, their motivations over the years. So again, you know, when I kind of first started, most of the sellers needed liquidity for some some reason. Um, a lot of them didn't actually love to transact in the secondary market because they viewed it as a sign of distress if if an, if an LP was signing and they didn't want to be lumped into that classification. But I think as we as we look at the market today. Um, most of the sellers are actually doing uh, are are transacting out of active portfolio management, and that could be um, there could be a number of different reasons that are that are behind that in terms of okay, well maybe we want to redeploy capital elsewhere, or we want to um, you know we 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 want to um, cut off this relationship, um, or we just want to kind of you know, manage our overall exposure a little bit differently, or there's a CIO change, lots of different reasons. But really what we found is sellers nowadays, um, you know, similar to kind of how public fund managers manage their portfolios, private managers are taking a similar view and and becoming more active in, in their overall management. Um, the other change is, is the general partners themselves have become much more active in the market. And so um, they're actually using it both to manage their limited partnership base. Um, so if you think about if the LP interest trades, you're losing one of your original limited partners and who are you replacing that with? And so general partners are very cognizant of, of who they're replacing that with and, and making sure that they're replacing it with an equal or or more appealing long-term um, investor in their, in their roster of LPs. Also, GPs are looking more and more into using the secondary market as their own means of of liquidity. And so that both enables them to hold on to some of their marquee assets for longer than maybe what their fund what their fund life was set up for. Um, and also participating as as buyers on this on the secondary side um, in terms of some of these these asset level transactions. Yeah. And what are you seeing now in terms of the pricing? And of course, it you know, it all depends on the on the vintage and the portfolio, but just overall, you know, what, what happened sort of in the span of the last um 12 months, how has the pricing evolved? And what are we talking about if let's say you are an LP that you know needs to generate liquidity um with a fund that's like a 10-year fund, you know, somewhere in the middle of the life. Um, what what should you expect, sir? Where is the market today for pricing? Yeah, so so pricing ebbs and flows over time. And um 
And a lot of it takes cues from the public markets as well. And so, you know, part of it is just the the um, structural dynamic in which in which secondaries um, work. And so, if you think about public markets, you know, assets are trading every single day. There's a daily price set at any point in time. You know, there's there's price discovery out there. For private markets, um, typically the assets are marked on a quarterly basis by the general partners. And so in periods, so so when you're buying a secondary limited partnership interest, you're buying off of a valuation in arrears. So right now, beginning of January, if we're looking at buying an LP interest, most likely that's going to be priced off of the September 30th, 2023 valuations. And so in periods where the public markets and the overall markets are, are functioning very strong um, and there's uplifts, then a lot of times pricing gets stronger. And in, in periods of time where there's more volatility and more uncertainty, because again, we're kind of pricing off that arrears valuation and not today's valuation, um, there ends up being larger optical discounts. And so what we've seen was really um, pricing, pricing has been pretty strong over the longer term, over the past you know five, seven years. In 2021, similar to kind of the, the public markets, it, it really tended to peak. Discounts were, were pretty thin. And then, um, you know, going into 2023, maybe late, late 2022 and into 2023, discounts really widened. And so um, for buyout funds that were historically trading closer to, you know, five or 10% discounts, that probably widened to 15 to 20% discounts. And for venture, you know, things that normally traded at, let's call it, historically venture is traded at larger discounts than buyout. And so, Maybe things were trading at 15%-ish discounts um, for a while. In 2022, 2023, that widened to closer to 30% plus discounts, and so pretty wide. Um, as we sit today, some of that's worked through the system. The discounts have come down a little bit. Um, so you're seeing buyout discounts probably in that you know 5 to 10% type range and venture discounts still in the 30% uh, type range. Yeah. And my understanding is that a lot of the secondary funds are a different opportunity for LPs. And so their expected return is generally lower than, let's say, an early stage VC fund. Right. And so if, if an LP is making that transaction where they're deciding to sell their LP stake, and then let's say you are stepping in your expected return for that transaction is generally much lower than for you know somebody just entering into that um, or somebody investing in the early stage at the beginning. And so I've seen often very creative structures where the pricing is such that both sides can still be fine in the end, even if you're dis uh, even if you are um, transacting at a deep discount. So talk us a little bit through some of the sort of you know non vanilla pricing structures and and how do you manage relationships with all sides of these transactions to you know to sort of be a you know good preferred partner by all sides. Yeah, no, no, great. So maybe starting off with with um, the. The return targets of secondaries relative to venture, yes, I mean it's it's definitely lower to lower than venture and more akin to um, buyout type investing within private equity. Um, secondaries is is kind of viewed as a as a lower risk um, mm -hmm. strategy within within the private markets, and so um, 
And it's also focused on shorter duration. So secondary funds tend to focus a little bit more on IRR than end-of-day multiple, which is you know the opposite of venture, which is really about capturing that that extreme upside and, and driving driving the multiple. Um, that said, secondary targets are still normally within that um, private equity type return. So think of it as high teens or 20, 20% type IRRs that, that they're targeting. And you're right. Um, in in today's market and market volatility, you know one of the one of the biggest things is um, how to how to bridge the bid ask spread between buyers and sellers. And so, you know, when I first joined the mar- market again in 2010, my thought was, oh, there's got to be this massive opportunity set. There's a lot of turmoil in the market. It would be a great time to be a buyer. Um, you know, while that was true, what I didn't appreciate was, well, actually, while it's a good time to be a buyer because prices are distressed, it's much harder to get deals done. And so the volume of deals tends to actually drop off meaningfully. Same thing with say, um, you know, early 2020, when when COVID came around, you know, asset prices tanked and the secondary market pretty much froze. Price discovery at that point in time is, is very difficult. You don't have, you know, a whole lot of visibility into how businesses are going to be impacted. And so buyers both kind of slow down and need bigger discounts. And then Sellers don't want to take these massive discounts because even though they need liquidity, there's a threshold at which you know they'll they'll normally sell. So um, you know, oftentimes, like you said, structure can can kind of feed into that and help and help bridge that. And so it can be anything from purchase price deferrals. So let's say that there's a seller that um, wants to sell something and get off its book, but they don't necessarily need the cash today. So in that scenario, you could offer something. Okay. We'll pay you a certain price for it, but we don't actually have to pay you that cash until six months from now or a year from now, or maybe we pay pay you half of that today and half of half of that in a year from now. We we actually did a transaction um, in 2023 that had a deferral that went out um, a little bit over two years, and so a very meaningful deferral period on on that transaction. Um, another way is earnouts, and so you know, similar, we did a transaction recently. The optical discount um, was fairly sizable, but um, you know we also wanted to make sure that we were being very fair to the seller, and so we structured it such that we get a, a certain amount of capital back first, and then beyond that, um, similar to a M and A type deal, um, if the if if the fund you know assets perform that we're buying, um, we will share some of that upside with the seller, and so they can walk away not feeling like they um, you know. That they sold for a below market price, or that they they gave away too much of the upside. So, lots of different structures that that can take place. But I say, yeah, two of the easier ones are purchase price deferrals and and um, earnouts. And when you look at opportunities to purchase an LP stake in a VC fund, are there any um, sort of you know biases or philosophies that maybe you have about that where let's say you know do sector funds or specific sectors do they typically do you assign higher discount to those opportunities or sort of portfolio types broad portfolios versus concentrated or geography or something else or is it all really very asset dependent and sort of all becomes very detailed analysis of the underlying portfolio yeah so so um Look, when we underwrite, it's very asset dependent. We look at each of the underlying positions. Um, there tends not to be a whole lot of industry focus or sector focus within secondaries because um, while there are 
you know, some some sector focused PE funds, that's you would really be limiting the the universe out there. So most of the funds, let's say, even if they're sector specialists, they may have two or three different verticals that they specialize in. And so um, if we build out a team of just healthcare experts, that would really dramatically limit the type of um, transactions that we could go after. And, and, and so most secondary funds tend to be generalist and their specialization is in the secondary itself and the structure um, and understanding how to underwrite these opportunities. There is more specialization between groups that um, invest in, say, venture or buyout or um, or you know or credit or or real assets or infrastructure. So there are some specialized secondary funds that focus on those different areas. Um, the larger groups tend to be more more generalist in nature, and and yes, again, kind of do that that bottom up type underwriting. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the considerations for LPs. Let's say, you know, I'm a new CIO of an endowment. I come in and the first thing I want to do is fire every manager that the old CIO hired. Um, and I am going to do that uh, through selling my existing portfolio. So I've got a bunch of stakes and, and a bunch of portfolios. How should I think about different types of intermediaries to to do those transactions with right there's there's lots of different funds they're they're your competitors sort of what does competitive set look like what are some of the questions i should be asking and thinking through just beyond pricing yeah um so look i think first and foremost you you know if you're in that situation you want to think through your gp relationships right um it's difficult to restart relationships once you cut them off especially with Premier GPs, you know, there's there's a there's pockets of the market where LPs are selecting what funds they want to invest in, and then within that, there are some where those GPs are oversubscribed and can, you know, select which LPs they want to work with. And so you want to be mindful of if you are doing a secondary, um, how are you kind of going about that and making sure that you have good dialogue with the GP. Um, and that that you involve them in that process, especially if it's a GP that you want to have a relationship with going forward. Most GPs at this point understand what the secondary market is and the need for liquidity. And so if you're open and honest with them, then there's normally a path to maintaining that type of relationship. Um, in terms of you know the secondary process and using intermediaries, look, we, we see a mix. I mean, Secondaries can be very time consuming um, and it can be pretty daunting for groups that have never done it before. There's the aspect of what am I allowed to share in terms of information, right? As an LP in a fund, you're under confidentiality um, on those. And so you can't just kind of go and blast the GP's information and their reports to all types of buyers out there and and um, and see who gives you a price. You have to be very mindful of of the of that confidentiality. And so, um, it's good to either work with existing investors in those funds. And so, you know, that's a that's a big leg up that Hamilton Lane has, given the depth and the breadth of our relationships. A lot of times, when we're speaking with LPs, um, LPs will just come to us and say, "Okay, we're in we're in you know these twenty funds." Um, we're interested in getting pricing and we can do that using our own information without them having to share the information with us. And that can help with their own discovery process. It's also time consuming in terms of, um, you know, just the legal aspects and the negotiations and the deal execution. So 
that's where, again, depending on how sophisticated the limited partner is and really how big of a portfolio they're looking to sell, they may want to engage an intermediary. Um, the intermediaries or brokers can help them both identify um, targeted buyers, more targeted buyer universe, and help them save time there. They help them with, with um, managing the inform- information flows and the dialogue with general partners. And so oftentimes in larger portfolio transactions, they tend to be more time, you know, time consuming. And so that's where intermediaries can really help out um, and, and, you know, leverage them to do a lot of the admin work and also manage the right type of process. I think what we see is a lot of LPs that may just be selling a one-off portfolio or that may have done it before um, or may have existing relationships with secondary buyers they tend to sometimes manage those processes themselves um, and definitely favor, again, kind of groups groups like Hamilton Lane based off of both the relationship angle with the GP and knowing that they're handing off a, a you know high caliber limited partnership relationship to their GP and that a lot of times the GPs appreciate that and, and favor that. And also in terms of their own information sharing, they don't have to spend as much time with a group like Hamilton Lane figuring out, you know, what information they need to share and, and um, you know, going through the, the groundwork with the GPs to, to get those approvals and sharing that information. And then let's talk about the GP side. Um, tell us a little bit about how GPs can be using secondary um, markets to manage liquidity of their own portfolios. What are some of the most common use cases and what are some of the considerations within that? Um, right, like recently there's been a lot of articles that are talking about continuation funds with you know varying degree of uh, positive and or negative vibes. And so talk us through some of the considerations um, for GPs and and what should they be aware of um, when it comes to these markets? Yeah, so so I mean, the GPs are now a significant portion of of the secondary market, and that's really, you know started probably seven or eight years ago and and really picked up over the past um, four and five years where where GPs started to tap into the secondary markets. And I think, the number one thing for them to keep in mind is the secondary market can be a very attractive solution for them. I think I mentioned at the beginning, it's it's you know, it's a way for them to really retain some of their best assets for longer than what their fund life allows them to do, um, and avoid some of the conflicts of of you know crossover fund investments and and that type of stuff. That said, um, you know. GPs really need to be upfront with their own LPs, with their limited partners about about these types of transactions, and they need to really prioritize their limited partners' um, best interest when when considering these these transactions. So they need to um, talk to their limited partnership, their their limited partners, or their um, advisory committees about these transactions. Engage with them early on. Get feedback from them. Um, in terms of their interest level for these and just make sure that they're very transparent throughout the process, that they're sharing the same information with their existing limited partners as they are with the secondary buyers. There needs to be complete um, in, information uh, symmetry in these in these transactions. You know, the benefit for GPs is, is really to be able to, again, hold hold these assets, but also drive liquidity for their LPs. Um, and so sometimes, you know, 
getting later in the fund life. Um, there may be assets that aren't quite ready to be sold. They could be, you know, working on a second, a second iteration of their value creation strategy, um, or it could be something as simple as, well, we're coming back to market with a new fund, and a lot of LPs like to see distributions before they then, you know, double down on the manager and, and give them incremental cap, incremental capital for their next fund, and so it can be a way to basically replenish the coffer for their LPs and say, okay, we'll get you back some 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 of your distributions. We'll do that at nice levels of return, um, and you can take that capital and redeploy it into our next fund. You know, since we've given you favorable experiences, so there's lots of different reasons why GPs, um, you know, tap into the secondary market. And again, you know, over the past couple of years, it's been it's been, you know, and sometimes as much as sixty percent of the secondary market has been through these GP type transactions, which ends up being, you know, there's still liquidity. In, they're, we call them GP transactions because the GPs are involved with them and, and really orchestrate them, but they're still for the benefit of the LPs and driving liquidity for their for their LPs. And why do continuation vehicles in particular get you know a certain amount of criticism? Sort of what's what's the difference between um, utilizing these tools as as you said to just manage liquidity for LPs and and obviously you know venture in particular is a very long dated asset class, um, right? And so it it makes sense that some GPs would be thinking about using these tools. Um, so so why you know why. Is there some amount of criticism about it? And sort of how do you differentiate between um, some cases where, you know, there there might be some negative signal around GPs using these transactions? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in GP continuation funds, essentially what the GP is doing is set up a new vehicle with a new set of LPs and um, transferring their assets from their old their old fund into this new fund. That price is often set by the secondary investors that are um, that are investing in that, and so the price is set by a third party. But typically, because the GPs are continuing to manage these same as they had been for their primary investors, they are getting um, you know management fees and some level of carried interest on it. And so there is an inherent conflict in terms of you know gps kind of selling to themselves despite having the the lp set the new pricing and that the gps are collecting economics on this new vehicle and so that's where um sometimes these get a, a, a bad rap and i think you really need to understand again what are the motivations of the gp for doing this type of transaction and what is the desire from their existing lps for this type of transaction and so if a gp goes to their LPs and, and let, let's say they're they're in year two of their 10-year fund and they go to their LPs and say, hey, we want to sell a bunch of these assets into a continuation fund. That may may raise more eyebrows, right? The LPs would say, okay, well, why? You know, we, we still have appetite to hold these for a couple more years. Why would we want to take them away from us and sell them to somebody else when there's more return to be made? On the flip side, um, and sometimes there's good reasons for that, right? Um, you know, one of the reasons may be, well, look, we're we're kind of maxed out on the amount of capital that we have here, um, and we want to the the strategy for these companies requires more capital. And so, if we put this into a new vehicle and recapitalize it, we can put more capital into these companies and continue to support them in their growth efforts and really drive this forward. And by the way, as an existing investor, if you want to participate in that, you have the option to participate. Where you know you're more than welcome to to retain your interest by participating in this. And so, 
you need to make sure everything is kind of on the up and up. And so long as it is, we don't see that there's a whole lot of pushback on these. And also, you know, on the flip side, funds that again are, you know, six, seven, eight years old, that's where you oftentimes see the LPs looking to drive this, um, you know, GPs to use this liquidity solution as well. And so they 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 sometimes get a bad rap, um, but most of the times I think LPs are familiar with them enough that again, if there's that level of transfer, transparency in the communication, then normally there's not a, a whole lot of aversion to it. I'd say one other thing to, to think about is if it's a situation where, you know, we used to call these zombie funds or or vampire funds, right? The the funds are kind of they haven't performed well. The GPs are still sucking off management fees. Um, they are not in a carry position, and so then they're looking to basically reconstitute this fund so that they can get a you know a higher management fee and get a second you know a second crack at carry. Those are the ones that tend to have a little bit more conflict and and you know raise a little bit more eyebrows as well because in those situations the GPs really can end up uh, much better off than if they just continue to manage out their their existing fund. Again, there still may be reasons behind that, but you you have to be very um, aware of those situations. And let's switch to a couple of um, sort of higher level topics uh, about the sector. What role does technology play in the secondaries, both, you know, maybe tech enabled players, intermediaries, platforms, sort of what, what do you see? And then also, how do you use technology at Hamilton Lane to support your investing process? Where do you see most leverage from tech tools in private market investing in general? Yeah, so I mean, Obviously, tech is popping up everywhere um, in every industry, and and that's the same in in private equity and and secondaries. Um, I think there's a, there's a couple components. One is um, in terms of the intermediaries, we're seeing a lot of a lot more brokers that are trying to use technology in terms of facilitating deal flow and increased transparency around um, buyers. Price or, or sell, sellers um, pricing and 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 buyer appetite for that. I think what we've seen on on the tech side with with intermediaries is it tends to be a good use for kind of disseminating information. But a lot of the transaction themselves, the negotiations and the actual execution of it still tends to be offline because um, you know. Rightly or wrongly, there's there's still like paper intensive. Uh, the AML KYC um, aspects of those are still you know have have not yet been largely digitized yet, and so um, you know again it's it's more of kind of the the interface than than the actual inner workings of the transaction. Now there are groups, and and we've put some capital behind this as well in terms of. Digitizing the the transfer process and digitizing the AML and KYC process, and so um, that I I expect that will continue to change and and continue to to evolve pretty rapidly. On the um, on the buyer side, you know everybody's talking about their technology and how they're using technology, and you know now even how they're using AI to help price secondaries and and that type of stuff. Look, I think at the end of the day, technology is only as good as the data that you have behind it. Um, that's great if you have a good tech platform, but if all you're grabbing is kind of, you know, either wrong data or publicly available data, then that doesn't really provide you with that much of an angle because anybody else can do that. So, um, you know, at Hamilton Lane, 
we've been investing heavily in technology for um, quite some time now for, you know, at least, at least the past 10 years, I'd say we, we made a pretty big push into doing that. And that's really been able to, that that's, that's been an issue with the broader business because we have so much data. It was a big need for us, right? Um, we needed a better way to both collect that data, manage that data. And yes, as tech tools continue to kind of increase and get better, we're finding more efficient ways to actually use that data and process it. Um, but again, I think it's te- technology is something that everybody's talking about today, but it's really, you know, what's the strength of the data behind the technology that's important. And um, given your global focus, um, tell us a little bit about geographical differences between, um, you know, volumes of transactions. Maybe there are different types of terms. Um, what do you see between different um, regions of the world in secondaries? Yeah, so so it tends to mimic the broader private market ecosystem. And so, you know, I think that the majority of the, um, you know, private markets, the, the, the largest region within the private markets remains the U.S. And so naturally more of the transaction volume involves U.S. funds and U.S. Um, companies. Now that said, there's still very active market outside the U.S. with with Europe and with Asia and with with rest of the world. And most secondary buyers like to build a diversified portfolio. And so even if you're located here in the U.S., you tend to you know do a little bit in both Europe and Asia and rest of the world as well. And so there is, um, there's, there's meaningful activity and it, it tends to be global in nature, but yeah, I'd still say that 60 plus percent of it tends to be here in, in the U S in terms of, you know, what funds are transferring and what assets are transferring. There was a pretty big uplift in terms of Asia transactions a couple of years ago. Some of that has tapered off, um, given some of the geopolitical as well as some of the, the aspects of, of, just investing in 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 Asia, but that still continues to be a, a active market. Um, yeah, so that was, was going to be my my next question. As um, you know, maybe over the last twelve months or so, a number of large limited partners um, changed their positions and views on um, participating in uh, China opportunities in in both venture and, and private equity, just more broadly. Um, and as they're thinking about restructuring their portfolios, are you seeing a lot of interest in selling LP stakes in um, China-focused funds? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say we've seen a, a large uplift. Um, again, it's probably commensurate with with the overall size of of China within private equity, which which is which is pretty sizable. I think one dynamic that we've seen over in China is um, the local funds, the RMB funds, have become a bigger part of the you know the the venture market over there um, as opposed to the the global venture players. Um, and so within that, it is tougher for secondary funds to participate in secondaries um, in local RMB funds. You you need to be, you know, have an RMB fund set up in order to play play in that area. We've actually been one of the few groups that that have set that up. So we do have a, a RMB fund um, or RMB vehicle focused on on secondaries. And so we can play into that market. But um, I think maybe there's been a little bit of an uplift in terms of seller appetite over in Asia, but not not a dramatic amount, and I think part of it too is you know buyer you the the buyer appetite also needs to increase along with the seller appetite in order to actually see increases in volume. And I think today you're probably a little bit more 
constrained by buyer um, buyer capital than you are by kind of the sellers, the amount of sellers out there. And let's finish this conversation on secondaries with sort of a you know broader question of how the development and growth of the secondaries market may impact private equity and venture class and venture capital as as an asset class overall. And, you know, I often reflect when we think about public markets, right, primary issuance is such a tiny part of like what is happening and all the action. And, and of course, in private markets, that's a lot more difficult because of the transaction costs, because of the information access um, differences. So how do you think about the impact of the growing and active secondary market on the development of private equity as an asset class? Yeah. So, so again, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, um, it, it proves us out. But it's it's a hugely important to the overall, you know, private equity markets in terms of generating liquidities for LPs and and GPs and letting them kind of recycle that capital and reinvest in the private markets. And I think that's only going to continue to grow in importance. And I think what's what's helping to facilitate that is better information across the asset class. Um, you know, better education around what secondaries are. And, and um, so I think, you know, really, if, if you look at the amount of deal volume that transact within, within the private markets relative to the, the NAV, I mean, it's only a, a fraction of the amount of NAV out there. And so, um, you know, I think what's, what's really going to drive it is there's attractive returns to be had within the secondary market. And, um, we're seeing, you know, the the long-standing players raising larger funds, and we're seeing some new entrants into the secondary market. Um, and so, I think there that will continue to be a driver of the of the overall size. I think that the seller volume is there, the need for liquidity is already there, and will continue. And um, you know, but there's there's big barriers for entry. Again, the, the barriers for entry being the information needed to actually you know, price and invest um, and, and, and know, you know, be, be able to do that in a um, educated way and, and do that in a institutional way, I think is, is very important. And then also just the relationships. It's, it's very difficult to come in and buy a secondary in a fund um, when that fund manager doesn't know you. And so um, you do see some offshoots of secondary funds. Some of those are people that are experienced, but, um, you know, there's there's aspects of that there that that present pretty high barriers to entry um, in within within the asset class. But overall, I I, I expect it to continue to grow and, and be a a big part of the asset class. And I'd like to finish these conversations on uh, a more of a personal topic um, because you know we all are humans and we do things outside of work. So what is something outside of work that you know a lot about and are passionate about? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, look, a lot. I, so I have four kids. I'm married and have four kids. So a lot of my time is spent, uh, with the family and doing different things. Um, I love to get them out and about, but you know, I grew up surfing and so surfing, surfing is a big thing that I love to do. I'm getting my kids into it and, and I've traveled, you know, around the world surfing different spots. And, and so, um, you know, I think one thing that probably surprises people is if, if you show me a picture of of a wave, there's a good chance just by looking at it, I can tell you where it is and tell you a lot of facts about that. And most people probably just look at a wave and say, "Oh, that's a wave." But um, 
but yeah, I, I, I think most surfers probably uh, understand what I'm saying here. And um, that's something I'm, I'm definitely passionate about and, and, and love to do in my spare time. That's a really cool superpower. Um, well, Ned, thank you so much for um, walking us through the secondaries as a sector and um, sharing your expertise. And uh, perhaps next time we'll discuss waves. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Olga. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.